Chapter 9 of Uganda's White Man of Work, a story of Alexander M. McKay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Uganda's White Man of Work, a story of Alexander M. McKay by Sophia Lyon Foz. Chapter 9 McKay's Queer New Name. Mr. McKay was not an ordained minister of the gospel, but a mechanic. His best sermons were preached by the things he made with his hands. His sunburned face told of hours spent out of doors as farmer, carpenter, or bridge builder, and his hands were blackened and hardened by the heavy labor which was almost continually his. Many a time he longed for more spare hours in which the bright lads who came to the mission might be taught to read the Bible. At nights and in the evenings, when outdoor work was impossible, he would turn into schoolmaster, or printer, or, with the help of some Waganda boys, he would make an attempt at translating parts of the Bible into Luganda. He wrote, Any amount of mere preaching would never set these lazy fellows to work, and, if only the slaves work, what better are matters than before? I have made work so prominent a part of my teaching that I am called Muzungu Wa Kazi, white man of work. I tell them that God made men with only one stomach, but with two hands, implying they should work twice as much as they eat, but most of them are all stomach and no hands. That I work with my hands is a great marvel, and should be a healthful lesson. During the year of 1881, there was more than the usual amount of work to keep the hands of Mr. O'Flaherty and Mr. McKay busy. Indeed, the white man of work seldom could spare time to attend the Royal Baraza. Mr. O'Flaherty, being preacher, was the one who carried on the greater number of the discussions with the king and his chiefs at court. Just now a good-sized farm of perhaps twenty acres was at the disposal of the missionaries, ten times as much as the king had given them at first. To raise for themselves all the vegetables, fruit, and stock they might need for food became their ambition. Thus they would no longer be dependent upon the favor of a fickle king for gifts of food and for cowrie shells to keep them from starvation. It was no easy task to cut down the trees and underbrush, and to break up the soil so as to prepare these acres of wild land for cultivation. The natives, never having been used to the idea of working for wages, all manual work being done by slaves, it was difficult to get men and women to help in this undertaking. At first the blacks would only beg and steal from the white men, whether any work had been done or not. Finally, the white men succeeded in getting a few helpers to agree to finish a certain piece of work for definite wages. Some would work a week for the payment of a very small quantity of cloth. Women, who in Uganda do all the gardening, came to hoe and prune the plantain trees for a few cowrie shells, while half-grown lads sometimes consented for pay to do this women's work. After months of patient labor, 1,500 plantain trees were growing on the land. Splendid crops of maize, millet, wheat, beans, peas, tomatoes, and sweet potatoes were being gathered. There was a fair herd of cattle, together with goats and chickens, enough to supply them with meat. Part of the coffee they used was raised on their own trees, and the cotton they wove into cloth was of their own planting. From their own wheat crops they made flour and baked bread in a brick oven devised by Mr. McKay. Plantain rinds were burned to make lye for soap-making. They even went so far as to make sugar and molasses from Uganda sugarcane. All these new forms of labor the missionaries did themselves, or taught the natives by patient example. 
To all the tasks of various kinds involved in farming was added that of building a new home for the missionaries. Hitherto they had lived in a hut of native build. Oftentimes the rain would drip through the grass roof, and on the moist mud floors weeds and grass would insist on growing. The lower parts of the walls, being shaded by the roof and soaked by the rains, soon rotted. Because such conditions were so unhealthful, Mr. Mackay determined to build the best sort of house he could with the materials at his disposal. Because of the rumors spread by the Arabs that brick houses would be used as forts, he did not dare build of that material. So the frame he made of wild palm, the only wood in Uganda which can resist the ravages of the white ants. Between the beams, the walls were filled in with stones and red clay, and plastered over, both inside and outside, with plaster. To protect these walls from rain, the heavily thatched roof was made to extend some feet beyond them, and was supported by substantial pillars. The two stories within, and the stairway connecting them, seemed most marvelous to the ignorant Waganda, who had never before seen one house built on top of another. The wooden floor and the latticework for windows did much toward making the house comfortable and wholesome as a home for the white men. With all the delays caused by inefficient and lazy workmen, by Mr. Mackay's occasional attacks of fever, and by the dozen and one other hindrances that may not be named, a full year passed before the new home was completed. The fame of this wonderful house and farm spread even beyond the bounds of Uganda, and here and there some enterprising man began to copy this or that improvement suggested by the white man's way of living. For three years the missionaries had been drinking the same kind of water as was used by the natives. Not a well or a pump had ever been seen in the land. The water, which naturally drained into the hollow swamps between the hills, carrying filth with it, was the only supply the Waganda knew. After a fearful plague had swept over the land, and the white men themselves had been weakened by repeated attacks of fever, they realized the urgent need for a well of their own where they could find pure, fresh water. They decided to dig a well within their own premises. The men who were set to work with pick and shovel could not believe that water could be found by digging into the top of a hill. Water could be found only at the bottom, they said. When we got too far down to throw up the earth with a shovel, says Mr. McKay, I set up a trestle of strong trees, and with rope and pulley and bucket, much to the astonishment of all the natives, we hoisted up the clay till we reached water just at the depth I predicted. The Waganda never saw a deep well before, and could not believe that water could be had on a hillside until they saw the liquid itself. It took more than a week to sink the well, but when I afterwards repaired a battered pump, which I bought in London, and they saw a copious stream ascend twenty feet high, and flow and flow, as long as one worked the handle, their wonder and amazement knew no bounds. Mackay Lubara, Mackay Lubara Dala, was cried by all. Mackay is the great spirit. He is truly the great spirit. But I told them that there was only one great spirit, that is, God, and I was only a man like themselves. To each company that came near I explained the action of the pump, some understanding best when I said that it was only a sort of elephant's trunk made of copper. To others I explained that it was only a beer-drinking tube on a large scale, with a tongue of iron that sucked up the water, as their tongues sucked up the beer from their gourds. Oh, the Bazungu, the Bazungu, they are the men, they can do everything. The Arabs and coastmen know nothing at all. They can only draw water in the swamp where we get it ourselves, but, oh, a a 
Mackay is clever, clever. The king will get them to carry him to see this wonderful thing. Very seldom was the white man of work unwelcome at court when he had time to go. Because of the wonderful things he made, he became very popular with the king. One day he brought to the court a diamond and showed the king how glass is cut. He also exhibited a yoke and explained how oxen are harnessed so that they may be used for drawing loads. There must remain nothing for white men to know. They know everything, said Mutesa in astonishment. We know yet only the beginning of things. Every year we make advances in knowledge, Mackay replied. Can Waganda ever become clever like the Bazungu? Yes, and yet even more clever. The king laughed and said, I don't believe it. Of course the chiefs laughed too, as they always did whenever the king laughed. Is it not the case, asked Mackay, that the scholar usually becomes wiser than his teacher? The skill of the Bazungu today is much greater than their skills a year ago, while tomorrow they will improve on the wisdom of today. The pupil stands on the shoulders of him that taught him. He sees all that his master sees, and a great deal farther, too. All seemed delighted with the idea. A few months later, when court was dismissed, many of the chiefs heartily shook hands with Mr. Mackay. The fame of the white man of work reached its climax when he successfully served as undertaker for the king's mother, Namasole. When she was ill with fever, she refused to take any of the white man's medicine, nor would she allow anyone near her wearing calico or anything foreign, so wedded was she to her old heathen ways. The native witch-doctors brought their charms to her bedside and chanted their prayers over her, but she only grew worse. When she died, the drums at the palace were loudly beaten to frighten away the King of Terrors, who, they feared, might escort her departed spirit into the unseen world. In Uganda, only the souls of kings and great men and women were supposed to live after death. Special care was therefore taken at royal burials to give the dead due honor, for their spirits were supposed to enter into certain persons who then became witches and had the power, if angry, to do great evil to men. The story of the coffin and the sermon he preached through its making, the white man of work himself will tell. The royal mourning lasted a month, during which time no work was allowed to be done in the land. No boat could start, nor anyone carry a load, until the queen was buried. But while others were resting, I was toiling hard night and day for thirty days, for all were waiting for me. The morning after Namasole died, Mr. O'Flaherty and I went to court to pay our respects to the king. All the chiefs were clad in rags and crying, or rather roaring, with their hands clasped above their heads. Mutesa determined to make a funeral to surpass in splendor any burial that had ever taken place in the country. Such is the desire of every king to outstrip his predecessors. Fifty thousand bark cloths were ordered to be levied in the land, besides some thousand of yards of English calico. Mutesa asked me how we buried royalty in Europe. I replied that we made three coffins, the inner of wood, the next of lead, and the outer of wood covered with cloth. I knew the custom of the Waganda in burying their kings. It was to wrap the body, after mummifying it, in several thousand bark cloths, and to bury the great pile in a huge grave, building a house over all and appointing certain witches to guard the grave for generations. Would you be able to make three coffins? Mutesa asked me. I replied, yes, if you find the material. He said he had no lead, but he had a lot of copper trays and drums which he could supply if I could manufacture a coffin out of them. Frequently we had been twitted by the king at court for failing to work for him, 
Accordingly, I agreed to be undertaker, thinking it a small affair. But then the dimensions. Everything was to be as large as possible. Immediately all the copper in the king's stores was turned out and sent down to our mission. Five large bronze trays of Egyptian workmanship, copper drums, copper cans and copper pots, and plates, all were produced. And out of these materials, I was to make a coffin for the queen. All the skilled workmen were ordered to my assistance. Next morning I went off to Rusaka, some three miles distant, to measure the body. Much objection was made by the royal ladies there at my going in to measure the corpse. But my friend, Cambalango, was there, as master of ceremonies, and he explained that I was commissioned by the king. But I was somewhat taken aback on being told by some of the other chiefs that I should have measured not the corpse, but the dimensions of the grave, and make the coffin to fit the latter. I told them there was not copper enough in the land to make a box larger than necessary, that if there was I would willingly make a coffin as large as a mountain, but as it was I could make the inner coffins to suit the body, and the outer one as large as a house if they liked. In ten days' time we had finished the two inner coffins, the first being of wood, cushioned all inside with cotton wool, and covered all over, inside and out, with snow-white calico, secured with a thousand copper tacks. Ornamental work I made by cutting patterns out of black and white pocket handkerchiefs and tacking them on. The copper box measured seven feet long by three feet wide and three feet high, shaped like a coffin, but the king's copper was enough for barely more than the lid and ends, so we had to supply, for the sides, four sheets of copper plate, which the king paid for at once in ivory, as we did not think well to give these away out of the mission stores. We gave our workmanship and skill and time, besides the tools and all the iron nails, no small quantity. We received copper wire as an equivalent for the copper tax. Even the copper coffin we neatly lined all over inside with white calico, tacked into lays, which we first riveted to the copper plate. It is needless to describe the worry and trouble we had, working late and early and sometimes all the night. At every hour of the day, pages were sent down to inspect the progress and ask when it would be done. The native workmen, especially the headmen among them, would do almost nothing, and generally spoiled what they did. They preferred sitting down all day smoking and watching how I did. I was able to get some assistance, however, from several of the younger fellows. But even in the doing of a small piece of work like this, which all granted was far beyond their own powers to accomplish, there must needs be an exhibition of jealousy and ill-feeling on the part of some chiefs and the Arabs. They told the king that we made the coffins small, much too small for Namasole, because we wanted the timber to furnish our house with, that we had already secreted in our house a lot of boards, that perhaps we might show good workmanship, but we could not work fast. Mutesa alone stood our friend. He refused to believe that we had appropriated any boards, while he said to our accusers that what was done well could not be done in a day. Can women cook plantains well if you hurry her? asked the friendly king. In a week's time we had about a hundred boards cut and squared to fit, and nailed together with strong ribs like the sides of a schooner. When together it looked like a small house rather than a coffin. After a few more days we had enough boards for the lid. Then we covered the whole outside with native bark cloth and lined the inside with pure snow-white calico. Each side was made a piece by itself so that it might easily be carried. A thousand men arrived to bear the parts to the grave, and most fortunately it did not rain. We put them together before the king, who challenged all to say if such workmanship could be done in the country by the Waganda, or if anything of the kind had ever been seen in the land. 
Next day we had the king's orders to go to the burial. He wanted us to go the same day, but we were too tired, having for a full month been constantly at saw and hammer from dawn to midnight and often later. The grave was a huge pit, some twenty feet by fifteen feet at the mouth, by about thirty feet deep. It was dug in the center of the late queen's sleeping house, a monstrous hut some one hundred and fifty feet in diameter. The monster pit was neatly lined all around with bark cloth. Into this several thousand new bark cloths were thrown and carefully spread on the bottom, filling up the hole a long way. Then the sides of the huge box were lowered in with much trouble. I descended and nailed the corners together. After that I was summoned to the ceremony of putting the corpse into the coffin. Thousands of women were there, yelling with all their might, and a few with tears in their eyes. Only the ladies of the royal family and the highest chiefs were near the corpse, which by this time was reduced to a mummy by constantly squeezing out the fluids with rags of bark cloth. It was wrapped in a new cloth and laid on the ground. The chiefs half filled the nicely padded coffin with bleached calico. Then several bundles of pretty charms belonging to the queen were put in. After that, the corpse, and then the coffin was filled up with more calico. Kim Bungwa, Kauta, and the other chiefs in charge carried the coffin to the court where the grave house was, when much more yelling took place. I screwed the lid down, but such was the affection of some of the royal ladies for the deceased that I had to have them ordered away because of their crying and tears and hugging of the coffin before I could get near to perform my duties as undertaker. Then came the copper coffin, into which the other one was lowered by means of a huge sheet. The lid of that had to be riveted down, and that process was new to the chiefs standing by. He cuts iron like thread, they said, as the pincers snapped the nails. McKay is a proper smith, they all shouted. With no mechanical contrivances, it was astonishing how they got the copper coffin, with its ponderous contents, lowered into the deep grave, without letting it fall, and foremost, into the great box below. The task was effected, however, by means of the great multitude of men. Thousands of yards of unbleached calico were then filled in round and over the copper coffin, until the big box was half full. The remainder was filled up with bark cloths, also all the space round the outside of the box. The lid was lowered, and I descended once more to nail it down. Several thousand more pieces of bark cloth were then laid on, till within three feet of the surface, when the earth was thrown in to the level of the floor. We returned at dusk, but the burying was not completed till nearly midnight. Next morning every man, woman, and child in the land had their heads shaved, and put off their morning dress of tattered bark cloths and belts of plantain leaves. The country had been waiting till we were done with our carpentry. In the grave of Queen Namasoli that day, it is said, there was buried $75,000 worth of bark cloth and calico. A more splendid burial had never before been given to royalty in Uganda. King Mutesa was proud to think that in his kingdom so wonderful a piece of work was possible. Mackay had won his goodwill as never before, and was longing and praying that at last he might be used to win Mutesa's heart for the Lord Christ. It was shortly before Christmas that his great opportunity came to plead with the king. This is the story of what took place as Mackay tells it. In the king's baraza, strangers were called forward to describe burial customs in various parts of Africa and Arabia. Some told of burying scores of living virgins with a dead king. Others told of how human lives were offered as sacrifices on like occasions while others told of the pomp and ceremony displayed at funerals. Turning to Mackay, the king asked, Tell me how they bury in your country. 
Do they do as I did in burying Namasole? Did you see any human sacrifices then? Masudi, an Arab, began to describe to me how when Mutesa's grandfather died, his father had thousands slaughtered at the grave. Don't mention such things, I said to Masudi, with such a gesture of horror that he became quiet at once. They're too cruel to be spoken about before the Mutesa of today. You, Mutesa, far surpass anyone, not only in Africa or in Arabia or in India, but even in Europe itself. I never heard of so much valuable cloth being buried in a royal grave as you buried with Namasole. This, of course, pleased him, as black men are fond of flattery. But let me tell you that all that fine cloth and those fine coffins will one day all be rotten. It may take ten years, or maybe a hundred years, or it may be a thousand years, but some day all will be rotten, and the body inside will rot too. Now we know this, hence in Christian countries we say that it matters little in what way the body is buried, for it will rot some time or other but it matters everything what becomes of the soul. Look at these two head chiefs of yours sitting by you. The katakiro is your right hand, and kambalango is your left hand. They are both very rich. Next to you, they are the greatest in the kingdom. They have cloth and cattle and lands and women and slaves, very much of all. Here they have much honor, and when they die they will be buried with much honor, but their bodies will one day rot. Now let me have only an old bark cloth, and nothing more of this world's riches, and I would not exchange my place for all the wealth and the greatness of both the Katakiro and Kambalango. All their greatness will pass away, and their souls are lost in the darkness of belief in the wizards, while I know that my soul is saved by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so that I have riches that never perish, which they know nothing about." The Katakiro, evidently struck by my contempt for all his greatness, replied that Mutesa was a believer in Jesus Christ, while he was a servant of Mutesa, consequently he was a Christian. Mutesa then began his usual excuses. There are these two religions, he said. When Masudi reads his book, the Quran, the white men call it lies. When the white men read their book, Masudi calls it lies, which is true. I left my seat, and going forward to the mat on which the katakiro was sitting, I knelt on it, and in the most solemn manner I said, O oh, Mutesa, my friend, do not always repeat that excuse. When you and I stand before God on the great day of judgment, will you reply to Almighty God that you did not know what to believe because Masudi told you one thing, and Mackay told you another? No, you have the New Testament. Read there for yourself. God will judge you by that. There never was any one yet who looked for the truth there and did not find it. So Mackay pleaded with Mutesa. Never again did another opportunity come. Like Agrippa in the days of Paul, this black king did not heed the Christian plea. His health grew worse continually. Weak and suffering intensely, he was unable to hold Baraza. Two years after his mother's pompous funeral, he too died, and died a heathen. End of chapter 9